0: Well greetings and welcome to the dividing online I have decided to nominate Kevin Sorbo for uh speaker of the house um and uh why not you don't have to be a you don't have to be a member and uh, I think Hercules would probably get something done <laughs> it doesn't doesn't seem to owe anybody much of anything um and <laughs> if if by the way the news comes across that there is a speaker of the house uh during the program please Please let me know. I'd be I'd be interested in knowing. Um uh, you're, it's cloudy, but you don't think it's gonna snow in Phoenix. Okay, all right. Uh the record number of ballots is 133 um in 1859, um, which was right before the Civil War. <laughs> so I'll let you figure out what that means, because I don't really have any idea at all what that means. Um but yeah, there you go. Uh that's where we are. And uh, <laughs> what a what an absolute incredible amazing world we live in uh today. I every morning every morning you wake up and and you you go it can't get any crazier until you until you turn what? Jerry Matatics. Uh, Well, I know. Algo has nominated Jerry Matatix for Speaker of the House. Now, the only problem with this is that um, Jerry Matatix has still not completed his dissertation. (laughs) And Rich and I have seen Jerry Matatix's organizational uh, skills at work um, in 1993 in Denver, Colorado, (laughs) <laughs> wow wait a minute wait a minute that was that was that this summer that'll be 30 years ago wow. 30 years ago wow. so can you thought the omnibus bill was bad imagine what jerry would put together yeah oh yeah i'm yeah yeah yeah, yeah. jerry is the single most disorganized person i've ever met in my life so maybe that's who do you need i i i don't know the whole thing's broken Anyways, so who, 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 who knows? Who cares? Anyway, on to serious things on the program today. I didn't mention this on the last program. It wasn't purposeful. Maybe it was allowing some time to pass. I didn't have any particular reasons why it went the direction I did. But as everybody knows, in uh, Rome today... Uh, there was a funeral for uh Cardinal Ratzinger Pope benedict sixteenth um joseph Cardinal ratzinger, et cetera et cetera former head of the modern incarnation of the inquisition i mean that 's what it was um, the doctrinal enforcer. Under John Paul II, um, a notable theologian on the Roman Catholic side of things um, really stood out because he's, he was German. And all you have to do is look at the Roman Catholic Church today in Germany. It's basically in schism. Um, it is, well, German rationalism, German liberalism, um, you, you know, despite the claims of our Roman, Roman Catholic friends, uh, having a Pope does not protect you from liberalism. In fact, having a Pope like Francis can be absolutely fatal as far as liberalism is concerned. And we may see that with, you know, when Francis resigns, dies, um, takes a SpaceX launch to another planet. (laughs) The way things are going these days, who knows? Um, He may well have laid the foundation for a continued lurch to the left. In the Roman Catholic Church, and so uh, it, it's 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 hard to say what's what's going to be coming. But when you when you look at Ratzinger, you you just have to to go well. he, he was he was identified as a radical conservative, but you compare him to any pope of the 19th century. Um, And he would be way to the left. Because after Vatican II, there was such an influx of, I know the old term was liberalism. Uh, I think that is a misleading term. We we need to call it what it is, leftism. And he was infected by it as well, even though he fought against certain forms of subjectivism. Still, um, you you can't come out of Germany and not be deeply influenced by the left. Uh, in in exegesis in philosophy in in everything and so he was certainly hated by the the left or left (laughs) Um, he was called the rottweiler the german shepherd uh, all these and they none of those they didn't mean any of that (laughs) if any of you have rottweilers you love german shepherds you love you it's not what they meant um, but still, he was still to the left of where Rome had been, um, not all that long ago. And so his passing, and of course, in fact, 600 years since a Pope had resigned, and that led to this strange pope emeritus um situation that was very odd and it did lead you to the situation where you've got two popes and you know they do not agree you know they're not saying the same thing now he pretty much pretty much not completely but pretty much kept out of things there were a couple of instances um but in comparison to Francis, he still looks extremely right-wing. There's no no choice about it. So when the announcement came out sometime late last week, I think, that he was very sick, which is sort of similar to what happened when the Queen passed away, you know, only a few hours earlier, they had been talking about her not being well. Um, the responses have been fascinating. Uh, And how do we, I, I think we need to, we need to think about what the responses have been because we are entering into a time period, I've been talking about it coming for years, where believing Roman Catholics and believing Protestants, whatever That term means any longer, are being forced into a smaller and smaller social space simply by the explosion of secularism and the willingness of the left to seek to silence anything but its own voice. And that means that believing protestants will be shoulder to shoulder with believing roman catholics when that happens one of the things that i know you know is just a necessary result of that is you you realize how far away you are from liberal protestants you you recognize that when you speak to your conservative Roman Catholic friend, you actually have a whole lot more foundational basis upon which to speak than than they have in talking to their, their liberal Catholic friends and we have in talking to liberal Protestant friends. And now that I think on it, I don't know that I have a liberal Protestant friend. And the, the reasons for that I don't have a liberal Catholic friends either. And the reasons are that liberal conservative divide has to do with objective truth, the knowability of divine revelation. I mean, everything that makes a worldview possible, we don't share with a liberal, a leftist, anything. And so when we see that, and especially for really conservative Bible-believing Christians who have never had anything but an external, surface-level, in-passing conversation with believing Roman Catholics, knowledgeable believing Roman Catholics, okay? Not not, not the 1950s style Catholic that you know really really believes what Father O'Flannery says, um, but doesn't take it seriously and doesn't live in light of anything and and doesn't do any reading or anything like that. Um, I'm not talking about that type of person. I'm talking about the person who really knows what's going on in the world, and as a Roman Catholic. Um, believes that the Roman Catholic system actually represents the teaching of Christ's church down through 2,000 years. Maybe hasn't engaged all the issues of the Reformation, or maybe has just simply accepted surface-level responses that they are fed, just as people on our side are fed surface-level responses and don't do the reading and don't... You know, there's there's lots of semi- conservative Protestants that I, as I say, are paddling around in the middle of the Tiber River. They, they aren't willing to go over to the other side, but it could happen. It's not a strong matter of conviction. They're certainly not trying to keep anybody from going over to their side. They're certainly trying to, trying to bring people across the river. Um, And they're, they're inconsistent. They're, they're, Accepting certain things that Rome believes and certain things that that uh, Luther taught or Calvin taught, and it, it's a it's a mishmash, and and some of them are actually happy. It's a mishmash. <laughs> they don't they don't like being pressed to consistency. Uh, I I certainly get that. Anyway, um, one of the things that was striking was to see the kind of responses there were to. Um the death of Joseph Ratzinger, however we want to refer to him uh, in the sense of Pope Emeritus and all the, the confusion that resulted out of that. Um, you have on both sides the, the responses of, uh, you, know, you know, as long as from the Roman Catholic perspective, as long as he's a Pope, you know, a great man, Let's, let's start the beatification process or whatever um and then on the other side you you have the um uh, unthinking well it's the pope of rome therefore he's the antichrist and better off that he's dead type of a response that you know i saw some people like that too and of course anybody who has you know you just compare john paul ii with uh with ratzinger with francis and you, you see major major differences between them they're very very different individuals and the reality is they had differences in theology and understanding of theology as well um but what has been really um educational necessary for us to observe, is how many ostensibly conservative, Bible-believing Baptists, Presbyterians, uh, Anglicans, who have had a response that disconnects the historical claims of the papacy from the expression of those historical claims in an individual such as joseph Ratzinger, and so you had um the one fellow with the afro over in uh, london who's with the um anglicans at least i thought he was with the anglicans i don't know maybe he isn't uh yeah um you know who's just there are just a bunch of people who made it very, very clear that from their perspective, the issues of the Reformation are past, they're no longer relevant, they can be dismissed, and that an individual's relationship with God is not really defined by the things he claims for himself. What I mean by that is when you... When I think of the issue of the papacy, okay, first of all, I think of epistemological claims. That's because of what I've done for many, many years in doing debates with Roman Catholics. At least back during the John Paul II years, the constant claim was, well, we don't have the problems you all do. We don't have the divisions you all do because we have a pope. Well, I knew that wasn't the case. I knew there were strong and clear divisions on fundamental and important issues. Despite having the Pope, the Pope rarely, John Paul II, rarely engaged in any type of disciplinary stuff, though I would guess he would be more likely to do so than Francis would. And you you just had, you, you had from the Roman Catholic perspective, this um, consistency because of how long John Paul II was was Pope. And so we have this, you know, we can make reference to him and so on and so forth. And Ratzinger sort of kept some of that when he became Pope. Um, but then with Francis, that all went up when, you know, almost 10 years ago now went out, went out the window. And that has caused some true existential angst to thinking Roman Catholics, because you, you can sit here and say all you want that the differences between a Ratzinger and a Francis don't really make any difference. But the fact of the matter is, they do. And there are much smaller differences between the Protestant denominations that you all have been banging away on forever, as the proof of the error of sola scriptura, so you you can't just, you can't have your cake and eat it, eat it too. But uh, many people, including Dr. Craig Carter, now this was what was interesting to me, was Dr. Carter has been one of the um, leading voices in the resourcement of Thomas Aquinas, his promotion of the great tradition has had deep inroads amongst Reformed Baptists. Uh, Baptist schools are recommending his works and reading his works, and he um, gave a series of lectures at, uh, I believe it was RTS, um, this past year. And His doctoral work was done at a believing conservative Roman Catholic institution. And a lot of people go, what, that that doesn't make any difference whatsoever. Well, if what you're saying is you can do good scholarship anywhere, okay. But why would you choose to do good scholarship anywhere? And then turn around and basically be saying to... What is supposed to be your community and fellowship that they need to reconsider some of the attitudes they've had toward uh the great tradition I have quoted to you many times Dr. Carter's definition of great tradition exegesis and have pointed out this is This is a Roman Catholic definition. This is Roman Catholic language. Um, And Dr. Carter is well aware of that fact, because the very next paragraph that is found in his book shows that he was well aware of that. Uh, There isn't any question about it. And his response to Ratzinger's death shows that he does not believe. And in fact, I, I don't know how you could believe in and say the things that he does, that the gospel is a part of what defines the Christian faith in the sense of what has been delivered to the saints. And I've said to this audience more than once, and I, I, I'll i have to say it again and and say it with sadness, if you are amongst those that believe, that this is sufficient to define the Christian faith in all contexts, um, at all times, even in the modern day. If you believe that, you're in a small minority. You're in a small minority. The majority of those who call themselves Christians today um, do not believe that. They do not believe that this is enough. There needs to be a lot of stuff after this. And maybe, you know, it can be in the form of inspired insights. It can be in the form of the development of tradition under the leadership of the Holy Spirit. Uh, There's lots of ways... Uh, that, that people will find to continue to say, I believe this is the word of God, but I don't believe it's enough. And what's behind that in the vast majority of schools of whatever stripe today, what's behind that is a fundamental lack of confidence that there is a consistency in the scriptures. there's also a lack of confidence in the authors of scriptures of the scriptures. Um, despite Jesus' teaching on the subject, um, there is an embarrassment uh, that, that's the only way to put it. there is an embarrassment on the part of many academics when they are forced to utilize the language of Scripture and the authors of Scripture, these are ancient men, and they were not philosophically trained, and they do not address the things that we we really think they needed to address. And so it's a good starting place, but we need something more than that. And that that's the that's the mindset, that's the idea of a large portion of the Academy. In their more honest moments, they will have to admit that there is an embarrassment at the simple faith of shepherd prophets. You know, some of the minor prophets. Um, the language they used, oh, Mark. I mean, that's just Mark doesn't really use the floweriest language, and you know, there's just a lot better Greek out there, you know, than Mark. And and there's there's this embarrassment on their part, and so once they get there, then you can understand why they would then start looking for something outside of this to supplement. And to sort of bring it up to date, and you find that in the great, you know, great tradition exegesis and all the traditional forms that you can then bring in to supplement and build up and make a little bit more understandable, not understandable, uh, acceptable within within the academy. Uh, so anyway... Uh, some of the responses have caused a lot of people to go, where are we standing any longer in regards to the relationship between Protestants and Roman Catholics? It's almost like there has been a major shift that no one wanted to talk about, and then something like this happens, and it shines a light on it. Um, sort of like people have been inching over like this, and the light hits, and it's like, I wonder if they'll notice that I'm six inches farther over than I used to be, and the light goes off for a while, and, 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 and this kind of movement. And sometimes that, sometimes it doesn't have to be purposeful. Like I said, I think there's a lot of pressure in our society right now, and I think a lot of Christians on both sides of the aisle. Um, are sitting there going, man, the world really hates anybody who believes in objective truth anymore. And since that's the case, um, wow. Uh, we sort of need to keep our friends close, you know, and, and when I see myself agreeing so often. With Roman Catholics on this stuff that I'm really not sure that Reformation stuff was really all that important, and join that together with um what I posted yesterday on Twitter from Matthew Barrett, a nine hundred and fifty page book on the reconsideration of the Reformation and i i I predicted um at the time, what that would involve uh I'm not sure that it will even show up on this <laughs> um, but i i I made a prediction, and yeah no it it won't show up it's one of the many I can't decrypt that things um of what I expected. Dr Barrett's book to be about and what it should it was probably going to say and and why it was using the language that it was uh, that it was using and I'm scrolling to see if I can find it real quick um I wasn't going to necessarily talk about this but uh, it 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 it's very very relevant because it fits into you know a lot of people here it is um yeah, The title is The Reformation as Renewal, Retrieving the One Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church and in Intellectual and Theological History. That is one heck of a title. And Craig Carter had said of it, not many books change our perception of a whole field of academic study. This one will change how the reformation is perceived in highly significant ways. And my my first comment was who could have seen that coming? <laughs> that that there you would want to change the perception of the reformation in highly significant. Who who could have seen that? Well, yeah. Um, and so I, I posted that on um uh, on Twitter and and basically point out, well in all probability, what this is going to be is it's going to be uh, saying that the the core doctrines of God uh, did not change. And there was overreaction on both sides. There was um, overcorrection on both sides, that Trent was an overreaction to the Reformation and The Reformation was overreaction to abuses within Roman Catholicism. And um, we need to uh, basically recognize that while those those issues were important, they were not actually truly definitional. And so we, we need to get back to appreciating the one holy Catholic apostolic church. Now, of course, I just watch Baptists doing this and chuckle. (laughs) This morning, I I think it was Matt LePage. uh, I think it was him. Somebody had a This Day in History thing where, uh, was it Grable? Uh, I think maybe today was the day that Conrad Grable was martyred in 1527. And uh, I posted a picture that I took on the bridge in Zurich in 2015. uh, Where they gave Anabaptists their third baptism. That is, they would tie them up and then they'd lower them into the water uh, and then pull them out and let them splutter and then eventually just keep them down there long enough till they bubbled and they died. And this was done at, at Zwingli's um, behest. And I, I just, you know, when, when Baptists try to pretend um, that that they're going to somehow do the great tradition thing. (laughs) I just go, okay, we obviously do history very, very, very differently from one another. Um, And I just sort of chuckle at that point. But back to all this, the, the response. And of course I didn't, somebody else had to post it. Craig Carter's response because he blocked me. You may remember he made a bunch of false statements about me saying I had said this, that, and the other thing about him, none of which is true. Uh, But he blocked me anyways. And um, so a lot of people are like, what's going on? Where where really are we in this relationship with Roman Catholicism and how we're to view these things? A man died. And we must differentiate between he and his successor and his predecessor and and see their different theological emphases and all those things are important and proper. But the issue is the ignorance of the vast majority of Protestants as to the claims of the papacy itself. And we live in a day where the current Pope does not exemplify the extensive claims that have been made for the papacy in the past. This isn't a Boniface. This isn't a Innocent the III. Um, th- this isn't a Leo X. The There's huge, huge differences here. And when you look at the claims that were being made at the time of the Reformation and afterwards all the way up through the 1870s with papal infallibility, you have to understand that today a lot of people just don't understand how fully extensive those claims on Rome's part really were and are. Because a lot of people are like, well, they may have been, you know, they may have been making these claims back then, but it's pretty obvious Francis doesn't believe that stuff. So how do I factor all that in? For me, the thing that helps blow away some of the smoke and some of the emotion is to remember the official titles, the official titles of the Roman pontiff. When you go to Rome, I've only been there once. No. Yes. Yeah, just once. Um, I've only been there once. And uh, I, I offended a bunch of people when having toured the Vatican. My primary response on social media was, wow, that was Gotti. gaudy." as in, how do, you, how do you take the simple faith of Peter in the New Testament and then turn it into this marble mausoleum? Uh, I mean, you know, we're literally popes are, are getting bigger and bigger and bigger places to be buried and fancier and more expensive. And there's gold and there's marble and there's just all sort. you know. How did that happen? Well, we'll go into that right now. But um, what struck me, even at that time, in the titles and i'm not talking about you know pontifex maximus yeah you can point out that was the the title you know it's pagan rome and all that's true that's that is where it came from uh and it's where where it was appropriated from and it never should have been and it's absurd um but there are three titles in particular that were not repudiated by joseph ratzinger or by francis or by John Paul II. And you must seriously consider what these titles mean. What are the three titles? Holy Father, Alter Christus, and Vicar of Christ. Holy Father, Alter Christus, and Vicar of Christ. Now, what, why why those? Holy Father. I mean, Many Roman Catholics just use that and it just flows off the tongue and, and there's, no, there's no thought given to it. Okay, all right. But herein lies the problem. What should be our standard to analyze these types of titles? Sort of goes back here, right? And and immediately, oh, you fundamentalist, backwoods, and vast majority of people just run out the door. Okay, see you later. See you later. But if I'm going to ask the question, are these titles pleasing in God's sight, or are they condemned in God's sight? Do they bring God's wrath? There's only one safe place for me to go, and it's not man's traditions. And it's not my emotions, either. Okay? Um, Holy Father. Holy Father. That's a phrase that does appear in Scripture. On the lips of Jesus, addressing God the Father. That's the only place it appears. It is a title of deity. And you might say, well... uh, you know it's just you know, it's certain you know papa and you know it's it's just like father in in regards to a priest or something like that you know and and we're just saying that he's you know particularly set up you can say all those things you want, but again, the reality is that the phrase is found in scripture and it is descriptive of God being used by the son of his father. This is the Son of God referring to the Father as Holy Father. Would you you use the divine name of anyone? I hope not. Isn't that in the same category as Holy Father? I cannot imagine a person taking as a religious title A phrase they know is used by Jesus of the Father in prayer. I can't imagine that. can't imagine that. And yet every Pope takes that title, Holy Father. And they're called that all day long. Altar Christus is not a term limited to the Pope. But the Pope is a priest. And when the Pope was ordained, honest, um, Roman Catholic priests will admit, as Mitch Paqua did, when we debated many, many, many moons ago, uh, is used in the ordination process of a priest as an alter Christus. And again, all that means is I stand in his place. All that means is I'm fulfilling his ministry. To which I have to again say with with respect and love, but when I examine that by this, there is no priesthood established by the apostles of Jesus Christ. There isn't. The distinction between presbyteros and episcopos, not in here. That's what the apostles taught. And remember, I, I asked Mitch Paqua twenty, three years ago, over twenty-three years ago now, almost quarter of a century has passed. When I asked him, is there any word that Jesus ever spoke? that is not recorded for us in Scripture, but has been infallibly revealed by the Roman Catholic Church? No. Anything the apostles spoke? No. Okay? So, there is no sacerdotal priesthood in the New Testament. There's not people whose souls are marked with a particular in a particular fashion, so they can do particular things. And you have to, in essence, say that Christ did not leave his church with what he needed. It had to develop over time. If you say, well, yeah, you know, yeah, okay. It, most of our scholars would admit that that took a while to develop. Okay? But you combine that then with their Roman Catholic understanding of what the priest does, especially sacramentally in the mass. And you find that the term alter Christus has much more weight to it than a mere title in ordination. But when you, when you read the words of what was it? O'Brien. Yeah. Um, I don't I probably do. Could pull it out there, but um when you read the words of O'Brien I hit the there it is. Uh let me see. No, nah, it's probably not gonna pull it up fast enough. Um there was a uh, prayer that I've repeated over and over again where O'Brien talks about, and I know I've saved it in Dropbox somewhere. Yeah, probably, but um, I'm trying to remember uh, what I would have called it. Um, let's see what... Yes, Algo remembers the pair. So do I so do I. Um that's that's the problem is I, I, I do uh it's it would uh what would happen is if I did a full search for Bows His Head, uh that would pull it out of the old um uh, IRC uh things. Um that that would that would do it fairly quickly, I imagine yeah uh yeah, there's lots of stuff pulling up here, but not not what I'm gonna find anyway, it was the statement from uh I think O'Brien, and I think it was in the faith of millions uh talking about the 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 sanctity and power of the Roman Catholic priest, how at his command the son of god bows his head and makes himself present upon upon the altar and there's there's no higher power and all the rest it, it clearly um, comes from ha when you hear the little ding <laughs> there may be something coming across from and this one is from August 9th there it is. It is John O'Brien. Okay, this is from, well, I wrote this blog article 12 years ago. Here we go. Uh, since I was making reference to it, and you all have been so patient anyway. What? You know, Rush used to have the group of people that their only job was to remember things. Maybe that's what we should call our, our group of guys in the chats. All they All they do, their job is to remember things. Well, I'm glad that we have them around because um, I don't remember things as well as I used to. So, so this is from 2010, just one of the articles. Like I said, John O'Brien, Faith of Millions, page 255-256. Thank you, Chris, for posting this. And thank you to the app <laughs> for working so that I can actually see the post. When the priest announces the tremendous words of consecration, he reaches up into the heavens and brings Christ down from his throne and places him upon our altar to be offered up again as the victim for the sins of man. It is a power greater than that of saints and angels, greater than that of seraphim and cherubim. Indeed, it is greater even the power of the Virgin Mary, while the Blessed Virgin was the human agency by which Christ became incarnate a single time. The priest brings Christ down from heaven and renders him present on our altar as the eternal victim for the sins of man, not once, but a thousand times. The priest speaks, and lo, Christ, the eternal omnipotent God, bows his head. That's what I was looking for. In humble obedience to the priest's command. Of what sublime dignity is the office of the Christian priest, who is thus privileged to act as the ambassador and vicegerent of Christ on earth. He continues the essential ministry of Christ. He teaches the faithful with the authority of Christ. He pardons the penitent sinner with the power of Christ. He offers up again the same sacrifice of adoration and atonement, which Christ offered on Calvary. No wonder that the name which spiritual writers are especially fond of applying to the priest is that of Alter Christus, for the priest is and should be another Christ. So that is the voice of pre-Vatican II Roman Catholicism, I would say. Um, but it's still what is believed by many, and certainly is what was believed when Roman Catholic theology developed into the form that it currently has. And so, as I said, um, Joseph Ratzinger accepted Holy Father, Alter Christus, and the third is Vicar of Christ. Vicar of Christ. And of course, vicar is one who takes the place of another. And you saw that in what I just read. But the question that should be asked is, is there a vicar of Christ in the New Testament? And the answer is most assuredly, yes. And it's not Peter. It's not a papacy. The vicar of Christ by Jesus' own teaching in John 14 and 16, is the Holy Spirit of God. He is, when Christ promises, when when he says, we will make our abode with you, speaking he and the Father, it's in the context of the promise of the Spirit of God. It is the Spirit of God, according to John chapter 7, who is not yet given because Christ had to ascend back to the, the Father before the Spirit could be given because the Spirit becomes the one by whom Christ is present with his people. He is the Vicar of Christ. So, even the current Pope allows himself to be addressed by and have titles attached to him of the Divine Trinity. Holy Father, the Father, Alter Christus, the Son, vicar of Christ's spirit, applied to him. I I cannot imagine how anyone who has read this as their ultimate authority could allow that to happen without immediately going, like like the angel, when John John bows down in Revelation 19 to the angel, the angel says, don't do that. No, stop. That's the issue with the papacy. There are many, many, many issues. We can talk about the history. We can talk about the pornocracy, And we can talk about military campaigns. And we can talk about indulgences. We can talk about all sorts of things. Uh, We can talk about Honorius and everything else. But the fact of the matter is, the titles that are given to the Pope are blasphemous. I, I don't know how someone... Can sit down with this and come to a different conclusion, unless you sit down with this and you put a big old honking lens over it that filters all that stuff out, okay then then I get it. I didn't see any of that to be honest with you. I, I didn't see any of that in the responses, any of the you know um, and that should be where the focus is. The, the the focus should be on that. And then the real question being, what about the gospel? What did this person believe about the gospel? And you will be able to find, you know, with the Pope, you're going to be able to find them saying all sorts of wonderful things about Jesus. Okay. And you'll find, you know, probably any day, the Mormon prophet is going to die because he's older than dirt, as every Mormon prophet from now on will be, unless they finally wake up and realize, you know, this is not the best way to do things. <laughs> it's just this it is not what was intended to have the oldest cadre on the planet as as prophet all the time. Um, he says all sorts of things, about great about Jesus and the governing mem- members of. of Jehovah's Witnesses say all sorts of wonderful things about Jesus. And, and saying wonderful things about Jesus is not the standard. I am sure that every one of the Judaizers in Galatia said wonderful things about Jesus. I wish it was just that. that that'd be so nice. We, we wouldn't have to have any arguments and we could all just get along and we, wouldn't, we really wouldn't have anything to say to the world, but that'd be wonderful if we could do that. But it's not the standard. It's not the standard. What did they believe Jesus did? Did they believe as they stood behind that altar over and over and over and over again that they were representing the one sacrifice of Christ that was not perfecting anyone in front of them? Is that what they believe? That has to be the issue. All the rest of the stuff pales into insignificance. That has to be the issue. That has to be the issue. But that's not what we were seeing in um, in what took place. Went a little bit longer on that than I expected, but well, I I, I won't say that than I expected because I did expect it would probably go well. A while. <laughs> few things to close up the program today on another topic that it's a it's a huge topic, and I'll just touch on it. Well, I don't know; it's only two fifty three in the afternoon, <laughs> at least where I am. Um, was thinking this morning, I actually posted a little, I wrote a little article this morning as soon as I got up. Um, and then I was also, I saw something on Twitter that got me thinking about, one of the things I tried to do and succeeded in doing with the Lord's help in writing the Forgotten Trinity was to write a book that was passionate about this divine truth. So many books on the Trinity are dry, deep tomes of very particular theology that, let's just be honest, normally leave the average person, the pew, clueless and cold. Clueless and cold. I am not clue I'm not cold when I think about the Trinity. It's not some speculative doctrine out there that I just look at and well we've decided that that's sort of definitional and no it, it you know, like I said I love the Trinity. That's how I started the book and a lot of people are like yeah you're right I've never I've never said that. I've never even thought of saying that. Well, why not? Well, and that's, that's how we got started in the conversation in the book. And one of the, one of the articles I wrote back in the back before CRI went, (whistles) by the way, someone sent me a link. I haven't even listened to it, but I guess in 2017, you didn't know about this. Um, In 2017, Um, sometime after Hank's conversion, um, he went after me on the Bible Landsman broadcast. And what I found interesting, like I said, I didn't to listen to it, but the guy who found it, you know, told me a little bit about it. But it was, um, I I don't know, it, it was not in response to my walking through the things he had said about solo scriptura and all the rest of that stuff, it, it it wandered off some, some other, some other direction. And, uh, you know, all these, all those years beforehand um, on the Bible answer Man broadcast uh, where we were all on the same, all the same side. Uh, I had the freedom to write articles for the CRI journal. And I, I'd really put some of my best effort into those articles. And one of them was called Beyond the Veil of Eternity. And it was on Philippians chapter 2. And I still think it's a very, very useful article today. And one of the things I brought out in that article was the beauty of the fact that there are just a few places in divine scripture, where the veil of eternity is, is not pulled back fully, but, but there's, there's an opening for us to get somewhat of a glimpse into the glories that we will see. And gives us, once in a while, a little bit of a glimpse backwards. And I've made the statement, we don't deserve that. God doesn't doesn't have to do that for us. But since he's done it for us, we should be incredibly thankful that we have treasures like that given to us as a gift of grace. And so when you think about um the relationship of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. The Father, the Son, the Spirit. It is the highest level of holiness that we're dealing with here. No creature, any creature that would demand to have knowledge of the Holy Communion of Father, Son, and Spirit in eternity past is a creature that knows nothing of God's greatness or their smallness. That's for sure. And one of the things that makes me love the Trinity is when we see the interaction of the divine persons in Scripture. Where do we see that? We see that in John 1. We see that in Colossians 1. We see that in Philippians chapter 2. We see that in Hebrews chapter 1. We see it in John chapter 17. Just a few places where we are given that privilege. And what that leads to is the danger of speculation, first of all. Because when you're only given so much information, then you want more. It's it's like when the Gnostics made up all the stupid stories about Jesus and his youth. Because we're only given you know, this much information, and so you're given just a little bit, and so you if you're not reverent, if you're not willing to be restrained by God's own act of giving us only so much and not more. Uh, then you, you go off and you do all that kind of silliness. One of the doctrines that, especially amongst Reformed people, has struck a nerve of truth is called the Eternal Covenant of Redemption, or the Pactum Salutis, for those who like Latin rather than plain old English. And it is in reference to the freedom exhibited by the divine persons in entering into the covenant of redemption and the roles that each of the divine persons would take, which are clearly different roles. That is the father does not do what the son does, the son does not do what the spirit does. We are clearly shown in the page of scripture, each one taking different roles, and we have to be very careful when we think about upon this as to what we derive from that, because I think there, there's been there's been errors there you know, if the scripture doesn't make the application. Then be very honest. You're simply talking about speculation here. Maybe we can see from this this, but we can't be dogmatic about it. So I think one of the one of the errors for years and years and years was when um, complementarians looked at what they thought they saw in the relationship of father and son, and extrapolated from that to human experience and relationships of authority and submission and stuff like that, that's problematic. That's problematic. But at the same time, there is no question that we have, for example, in John chapter 17, Jesus recognizing the glorious state that was his in the presence of the Father and his expression, John seventeen five, of his desire to return to that position of perfection. Glorify me with the glory which I had in your presence before the world was. So the Son was glorious in the presence of the Father. That means the Son recognized his distinction from the Father, which is why he knows to pray to the Father. He doesn't pray to himself, he doesn't pray to the Spirit, he prays to the Father. And there is a, when when you have terminology of, you know, the Father loves the Son, the Son does, always does what is pleasing to the Father. Sure, you can, if you want to try to limit all that to the incarnate state, you, you are free to do so if you wish, but it seems to go far beyond that. If we're to love God supremely, and that is the greatest commandment, then assuredly, the relationship the divine persons is the very essence of the definition of love. But you don't love a mirror image of yourself. We know what that leads to. That's a problem today there has to be a recognition of distinction. All within the reality that the one God being described in John chapter 17 is Yahweh. There's no question that the New Testament writers identified Jesus as Yahweh. There is only one Yahweh. These are the boundaries of divine revelation. And sound biblical theology that will edify the sheep of Christ will take the form of the boundaries provided by Scripture. Once you take that scriptural revelation and try to fit it within an externally derived system, you're going to change the shape of those boundaries. And that is going to fundamentally alter the relationship of those divine truths. And I believe it's the task of the church down through the centuries to honestly evaluate herself today as she seeks to engage a secular society, And recognize what forces are shaping our thoughts today and how we emphasize certain aspects of the faith over other aspects of the faith because of where we are in history. We need to know those things. But we also need to be able to look back and ask the question Has that happened in the past? Have there been times? when terms and language have come into our tradition that have become deeply entrenched that shouldn't have been there from the beginning. And as a result, there has been a, well, normally a compression of the breadth of God's revelation. Result of this is that there's a lot of people who just are really uncomfortable even talking about the pactum salutis. All of this to go back to a statement in the London Baptist Confession of Faith. Um, Here's what it says in paragraph 3 of chapter 7. This covenant is revealed in the gospel, first of all, to Adam and the promise of salvation by the seed of the woman, and afterwards by farther steps until the full discovery thereof was completed in the New Testament. And it is founded in that, here it is. And it is founded in that eternal covenant transaction that was between the Father and the Son about the redemption of the elect. That's not in the Westminster, but it's in London. London it is founded in that eternal covenant transaction that was between the Father and the Son about the redemption of the elect. The elect are not the father and the son, so there is a distinction there. But what does it mean that there is a transaction between the father and the son? Here's here's what I'm saying. If your fascination with Greek metaphysics forces you to eliminate such a thought as this, there's only one of two ways you can do that. Either go that goes beyond scripture. There's nothing in here that substantiates that. Okay? Just just be honest. I, I that that is a that is a worthwhile challenge to deal with. Or just admit that your metaphysical system is more important than the parameters of biblical revelation. Just just be open about it. Just be straight up about it. Now, the, the phrase, eternal covenant redemption, does not appear in the page of Scripture. So its validity is not established by the London Baptist Confession of Faith. Okay, Its validity has to be established in the same way as anything else. And I say to you, the validity of Aristotelian Aristotelian Greek metaphysical categories would have to be established on the same basis. And the other side doesn't even try at that point because they know they can't. And that's where natural theology comes flying in, try to fill in the gaps, even though that's not what natural theology actually is. But if you're a Reformed Baptist, you just might want to note that phraseology what is the eternal covenant transaction that was between the Father and the Son about the redemption of the elect? Because that, that grounds the gospel in the eternal decree in an, in an astonishingly clear and solid fashion. And the question really has to be, okay, but where do you get that? And if you just simply go, well, it's in the confession, good enough for me. Um, no, we need to, you know, there's a number of, there's a number of texts that are provided that would give you a start. Um, but there's more to it than that. Um, and certainly I, I, I believe it's most definitely biblical, but when you get into how you demonstrate that, it, it shines a lot of light on certain conflicts that are taking place in our, in our day. All right. Went 10 minutes over, but that's all right. Um, do we have a speaker of the house? Mm-hmm. Haven't heard anything. Oh, okay. All right. <sighs> Kevin Sorbo hasn't arrived because that Twitter has nominated me. No, um, there, there is a very obvious reason why I cannot do that. And, uh, that is because, um, there is a rule in the house that you cannot wear coogies on the, um, on, on the floor that is not the rule here um, you uh you may have tried to uh, establish that rule but uh you did not get the sufficient sufficient number of votes um, to override my veto so no i didn't that that didn't work so anyway all right well thank you so much for listening to the program today lord willing we will be back with you again next week till then god bless mm-hmm.